So this <clears throat> this evening I'd like to, to offer some Dharma reflections and um, to really invite you to to listen to these reflections not as some kind of ultimate truth but as um, as an invitation to explore and to see how does this meet your experience? You know, we've been saying that I think quite consistently through the days but Wanting to really emphasize it some more. You know, it's, not, it's not an ultimate truth, or at least we shouldn't perceive it in that way, but as something to kind of open to, receive, and then check for ourselves, yeah? chew for ourselves, digest for ourselves. How does this resonate? How does this meet? Or how is this relevant to, to my life, to my experience? So I'd like to, to begin with, um, with one of the Buddha's similes. It's, it's, it's a fairly well-known one, so you may have heard it before. And it's the simile of the two arrows. And in the text, um, I'll, I'll kind of part of it I'll be paraphrasing and part of it I'll actually be quoting the, the translations of the text. In the text... Um, the the simile speaks about uh, when an ordinary person when an ordinary person meaning, you know, an ordinary human being like us is hit by an arrow it's painful (laughs) yeah, so that's the that's the, the first thing and of course we can imagine ourselves you know, so Arrows don't tend to fly um, so much around these days and randomly hit us. But, you know, even something like, you know, stubbing a toe or hitting our head against something or whatever, that, that does happen to us, you know. It's, it hurts. There's physical pain. And what the Buddha describes, um, and I think we often miss, is what happens next, yeah? So... We're hit by an arrow, or we stub our toe, or we bump our head against something that we didn't notice. And in the description, he says, you know, so what happens next? He or she, the the one who got hit by an arrow, then sorrows, grieves and laments, beats his or her breast, and becomes distraught. And I'm laughing because it's so graphic. <laughs> I just, you know, sometimes I just love these descriptions. Yeah. So I'll, I'll repeat it. Sorrows, grieves and laments, beats his or her breast and becomes distraught. So the first arrow is an event, yeah, something that happens. It can be physical. Um, it can be emotional. It can be mental. Pain or discomfort. So it's the whole range, yeah? You know, again, the image of the arrow is quite extreme. But it can be a whole range of events. That's the first arrow. The second arrow is our our reaction and our reactivity, yeah? Which often, 
in, when, when it happens, we actually don't discern between the two. Yeah? We, don't actually, we, can't, we don't actually know how to tell the difference. And this additional layer, the reaction, the reactivity, um, usually takes a um, form of rejection or uh, resistance or distraction yeah, or suppression or blame you know, either blaming ourselves or blaming somebody else. Um, and, and again, this can be physical or mental. So in a physical sense, the, the, there's a contraction around the pain. Yeah? If, if we start exploring pain in the body, we can actually see that. So there's something that's painful, and then the body naturally tries to protect itself by contracting around. So even on the, on the physical level, there's this um, reactivity response. And what's common to all these um, reactions are that they cause suffering. Yeah? They cause suffering. There's suffering in them. This is really a, an important point, so please tell me if it's not clear. Not clear? Yes, clear. Okay, hopefully. And when we look at this more in our own experience, we see that essentially what we're trying to do yeah, is that we're, we're re- re- reacting to the first error. We're trying to actually get rid of the pain or soothe the pain, but what we're actually doing is we're shooting a second arrow, yeah, which is kind of ouch. Yeah. And this is a very, it's a really strong human tendency to do this. Yeah, and that's why... Um, the teachings point to it, you know, because it's really, it's common to us and common to our experience that we do this. So this is the ordinary person. This is what happens to the ordinary person. But apparently there's, there's people who are extraordinary, yeah, not ordinary. And in the text, they're described as a well-instructed disciple of the noble one, i.e. the Buddha. A well-instructed disciple. So someone who's really listened to the teachings, reflected on them, um, and, and found ways of integrating and applying the teachings. And, and what happens to such a person when he or she gets hit by an arrow while doing their walking meditation innocently? So in the description it says, so she or he feels the pain of the first arrow, but does not add a second. Yeah? He or she feels the pain of the first arrow, but does not add the second. And this, to a great degree, is the end of suffering that the teachings are about. Yeah? <coughs> this is the end of suffering that the teachings are about. So you know, often when we hear this, you know, that the Buddha's teachings are about the end of suffering, it does not mean that it's the end of pain. <laughs> Yeah, physical pain, as long as we have a physical body, uh, will continue to, to be present for us. Um, similarly, similarly, things like grief and loss, you know, they don't disappear. Yeah, they're still part of our humanity. They're part of the human condition. But these extra layers... Yeah, of resistance, of suppression, of distraction, of blame. These extra layers of tension and contraction, these layers no longer take place. Yeah. 
So this extra, this suffering, and, and sometimes um, <coughs> when this simile is taught, the distinction is that you know the first because um, the first arrow is the inevitable pain of of being a human being, and then the second arrow is the kind of additional mental um, suffering that that gets added on through our habits and tendencies of of reactivity. I hope you're with me. So what the teachings are inviting us to do, what the teachings are inviting us to do is to, uh, with a lot of gentleness and kindness and patience, to explore, first of all, where, where am I adding the second arrows? Yeah. <coughs> where am I adding the second arrows? How am I adding the second arrows? And secondly, how can I let go? Yeah, how can I let go of of these second arrows, of these extra layers of distress? And this isn't easy to do. Yeah, it's not easy to do, but it's possible. It's possible to do, and it's possible to um, de- develop ways of relating to experience that that support us in just letting go, just letting go of these second arrows. And yesterday, Nathan was speaking of, um, of contraction arising in experience. Yeah, he was speaking about, um, I can't remember now exactly what he was referring to, but that contraction, we feel contraction. I think he was quite funny about it. Um, he was talking about this, um, that, that when aversion, for example, is present, there's contraction in the being. Yeah. Where there's meta present, there's spaciousness in the being. Yeah. So contraction can be an indication to us. Yeah? If there's contraction in the body or the mind, it's an indication that there's probably some arrows flying around. <laughs> yeah? It can be the second arrow, the third arrow, the 50th arrow. You know, sometimes they really come in a, like a whole volley. Of them. So noticing contraction can be an indication that there's some resistance, some aversion going on. Um, and that also makes it a doorway. Yeah? So if I notice contraction, that's also a doorway to letting go. Because yeah? I notice that it's happening. I know, oh, right, there's contraction. I'm feeling really small right now. If we can relax the contraction, even if it's just to a degree, yeah, not necessarily completely, but just to a degree, if we can relax the contraction, then the pain and the discomfort and the suffering also kind of ease off, decrease to a degree. So we've spoken of ways of doing this. You know, if we can relax, Nathan was talking about it yesterday, if we can relax the contraction with the breath, yeah, long breath, deep breath, um, opening the, the awareness through the body. If we can do that, the experience changes. Yeah, the experience changes. 
And again, it doesn't necessarily mean that pain goes away completely. <laughs> yeah, it's not a kind of a, <coughs> some kind of trick to to kind of eliminate pain from from our lives. So it doesn't necessarily mean the pain or the discomfort completely disappear, but through being held, yeah, held in a different way, held in a <coughs> wider space or a different way of relating the intensity goes down and the sense of the problematic goes down. So it's possible to even you know, experience, experience physical pain, physical discomfort without that being a problem. And you've probably experienced this in your lives. Yeah? It sounds weird but you've probably experienced it in your lives. So just to kind of really clarify the point again, our habitual way of looking, our habitual way of relating when there's pain, when there's discomfort, is resistance, is aversion, is, you know, this is a problem. Yeah. Liberating ways of looking ways of looking that support us to let go and to relax, are ways of looking like interest, yeah? being interested in the experience rather than just labeling it as a problem or kindness or relaxation. You know, all of these liberate, they change the experience. So this is, this is quite an important point. That the way of relationship to the experience affects the perception. Yeah? It affects the experience itself. And it's another, Nathan mentioned dependent origination yesterday. This is another really key aspect of dependent origination teachings, which will continue to unfold over the days. Um, it's particularly called fabrication, the fabrication of experience. How the mind plays a part in what we perceive, in what we perceive. So yesterday, I think I, in the instructions in the morning, I, I mentioned um, bodily fabrications when I was reading part of the sutta about calming the bodily fabrications through the breath. Um, so that's kind of one example of fabrication is the idea, you know, that there is a knee here, which is separate, independent, clearly defined, has an inherent nature, which is different to the rest of my body, for example, or even to this mattress. <coughs> you know, how much is my perception of my knee affected by what my knee is resting on? <laughs> for example. You know, we can start looking in this way, kind of asking these questions. Yeah. So the way we relate to an event affects how it is perceived and known. And the event itself is empty of inherent essence or nature. This is, this is 
emptiness, dependent origination, and the, the, the role of fabrication in this. And I, I want to give a, co- a couple of examples, because it's, in some ways it's very, um, it makes a lot of sense, but it's also difficult to grasp at the same time for our minds. So a few days ago, um, Nathan and I were in, uh, in Anandawan setting up for the retreat, and we had to go into Warora, into the town nearby, to, to, to buy, to do some shopping for the retreat. I won't tell you what was on the shopping list. Um, and so we needed to take an auto rickshaw from the, the crossing near Anandawan into town, <coughs> into the center of town. And so we were walking along um, on the lookout for a rickshaw. We saw a rickshaw parked by the side of the road, and we approached it and, uh, you know, said to the driver that, you know, Warora. <laughs> And he froze and kind of panicked um, and kind of was frantically telling us that he didn't speak English. And um, we were like, okay, and in our kind of basic Hindi, which is enough usually to negotiate a a ride in in an auto rickshaw, um, tried to communicate, but he just, he was completely frozen. And so he ran into um, a little stall near the road where there were some younger guys um, there and, and pulled them out <laughs> so that they would translate for him. Now, these guys either didn't know English either or, um, you know, for whatever reason, weren't confident to speak <laughs> it. But they were confident enough to negotiate with us in Hindi. So the way it was going was that the driver would say a price in Hindi. The young guy would say, would repeat that in Hindi to us. And then we would say, you know, what we wanted to pay in Hindi. And the guy, the young guy would repeat it in Hindi to the driver. <laughs> Away we went. And so, you know, it didn't take long. It wasn't a you know, crazy negotiation. We agreed on a price. We got into the the, the, the rickshaw and, and the driver was really happy and he was kind of saying to us and saying to these young guys you know how pleased he was that he had gotten them to translate into English um, and, and this was his perception yeah so this is fabrication yeah and it happens all the time it happens all the time we are so um, preoccupied with our expectations our views um, our ideas about the world that we don't actually notice what's really going on. Yeah? So it's an extreme, extreme example. But, you know, it's happened to me many times in, in different ways. Yeah? So his expectation that the young guy would be able to speak English and that he could not understand us, his expectation was that he could not understand us. Yeah? And so he, did, he was unable to understand us. Yeah? And, you know, our accent isn't that terrible. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, this is a real example of fabrication. What happens to us all the time? All the time. And, of course, on, a, on another level, he was absolutely, his understanding of this, the situation was absolutely spot on, you know. The, the third guy was very helpful in the situation. It <laughs> doesn't matter what language he was speaking, you know. So the kind of being grateful that he had called that other guy to solve the situation was absolutely spot on. Yeah, it solved the problem, but not in the way, not in the way that he, that I'm assuming that he assumed. 
happened. So that's, that's one example of fabrication. Um, another example um, comes from a, um, a story that um, the American teacher, Pema Chodron, tells, and I, I, I don't remember the details, so I might be... Um, I might not be accurate about the, the details. But um, she's telling a story, I think, about, um, about being on a boat um, with her nephew. And she is standing on the boat and she's feeling a lot of anxiety. And she's really, um, you know, not, not very happy. <laughs> um, and her nephew is, is really enjoying himself. Yeah, is really enjoying himself. And so they start having a conversation about their experience. And she, she says to him, look, I really, I, I really don't like being on a boat because, um, you know, I feel um, my kind of, my whole, my whole body is kind of feeling really shaky and, and kind of tremoring. And, and I feel like this little bit of like a... <gasps> feeling you know and and you know it's just really unpleasant really really unpleasant and her nephew says oh that's interesting because I also feel like my whole body's kind of like trembling you know with with something and I also feel this (gasps) thing but I'm really enjoying it yeah so for him the same physical thing (laughs) is a manifestation of excitement and enthusiasm and for her the very same physical experience is one of anxiety yeah so it's not in the thing yeah it's not in the thing yeah same person um sorry same physical experience two different people or two different situations (coughs) even within the same person and the experience is different yeah the label the perception would be different yeah, and what goes into that, you know, is, you know, past experience, you know, expectations, views, genetic, sometimes social conditioning, you know, so many factors that go in and affect experience. So why is fabrication so important? You know, it's, it's, of course, it's kind of, you know, I, I, I get quite excited by it, as you probably saw, and I, I find it, you know, quite like, wow, um, eye-opening. But why, why is there such an emphasis on it in the teachings? Understanding fabrication and acknowledging that it is happening, even, you know, sometimes we can't see it, but just acknowledging that it is happening opens up the possibility of working with and attending to, to our experience in our lives, yeah? In a much fuller way, a much fuller way. So whatever, any, whatever the event is that's going on for us, and whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, um, whether there's contraction or ease, yeah? Whatever the event, it's not the end of the story, yeah? This is what fabrication means, that whatever is going on, whatever is going on is being impacted, being fabricated. And part of what's impacted, impacting it is the fabrication of the mind, is the, the part the mind plays. Which means that we have the possibility to develop skills 
to develop ways of relating to experience and ways of looking at experience which respond rather than react. Yeah, that respond rather than react. And that we have the possibility to develop um, a range of responses rather than just the habitual ones that we repeat time after time. So it's a reminder that our mind, our perception, and even objects of perception are pliable, are flexible, are not fixed, not fixed. And that we can further develop and increase this flexibility and pliability. So this is a huge thing that we do in meditation practice, a huge thing of really developing this pliability and flexibility of mind. And I want to read a a short quote from a a book I'm reading at the moment by a, a man called Alan Clements. And he says, Meditation is the practice of directly participating in the experience of freedom. Meditation is the practice of directly participate in the experience, participating in the experience of freedom. A way of overcoming energies that function to con- contract, densify and burden consciousness. While evolving other energies that function to enhance the plasticity, luminosity and transparency of, of consciousness. So, like, for me, it's a really beautiful quote and really kind of, of what we're doing. Yes. Yeah, it's not, uh, yeah, it's not so simple. Meditation is the practice of directly participating in the experience of freedom, a way of overcoming energies that function to contract, densify, and burden consciousness, while evolving other energies that function to enhance its plasticity, luminosity, and transparency. So through meditation, overcoming energies that contract, that densify, and evolving, nourishing, developing energies that enhance the plasticity, the luminosity, and the transparency of consciousness or of the mind or of awareness. So we're interested in getting to know, yeah, getting to know these energies, both the energies that contract and densify and the energies that enhance the flexibility and the luminosity. Yeah, we're interested in getting to know all of these because they're all part of our of our being and of our of our mind, of our consciousness. And we can't just kind of get to know one half of what's going on, yeah? It all plays a part, all plays a part. So there, we, can, we can also see that all these energies are ways of looking, they're all ways of relating, yeah? They all affect what we see and how we relate to life. So 
I'd like to, to speak a little bit about how, how to work with these energies, how, how we actually, what, what can we actually do in order to, to get to know, you know, the, the, the ones that contract and the ones that, um, that release, yeah. And I want to use another simile for this. Um, and this simile particularly relates to, to five energies which, are, um, which arise in meditation. And they're all energies that contract and, and densify consciousness. But um, the reason I, I, I love this simile is because it, it really gives a flavor to how and the presence of specific energies, how it affects the mind, how it affects perception, how it affects consciousness. So in the simile, the Buddha uses um, the example of a pool of water, pool of very, very clear water. It's so clear that it reflects our image in it. And that's, that's the image that he uses for the mind. Yeah. So the mind is like a pool of, of water so clear that if you look at in it, you can clearly see your, your image. And so when the first kind of contracting, obstructing energy, uh, desire, when that is present in the mind, it is as if the pool of water were suffused with a coloured dye. Yeah. So the mind, consciousness, is suffused with a colour, with a dye, yeah, when desire is present. So whatever we see will be coloured yeah, in that colour. Whatever we perceive will be coloured in that way. When the second energy, aversion, when that is present in the mind, it's as if the water in the pool is boiling. Yeah? It's boiling and bubbling. We can't see clearly. Yes, yeah? so it completely again obstructs. And we can think of our own experience when we, um, when we, ha- when we feel extreme aversion or anger. That's what it feels like. Yeah? It's like boiling water. And it completely obstructs the, the clear seeing, you know. If you've ever experienced, and I'm sure you have, moments of anger and then acting from them. And then afterwards reflecting back and kind of thinking, what was that? You know, like in a real sense of having been blind in the situation. You know, so blinded by the actual kind of boiling quality of, of the water, the clarity of mind. The, the third energy is um, obstructive energy is traditionally called sloth and turpa. <laughs> Wonderful words. Dullness, like dullness of mind and this kind of sinking feeling that we get in the mind or in the body. Yeah? Either when there's tiredness or just very, very extreme dullness in mind. So when, when this is present, when this dullness of, of body and mind, when that's present, it's as if the pool of water... Uh, is overgrown with algae. So there's algae kind of covering the pool. And there's a real sense of um, stagnation, which again stops us from seeing clearly. Yeah, so there's that dullness, which is like a stagnant pool, a pool that gets no air, no movement in it. 
And the fourth obstructing energy is um, restlessness and worry, anxiety. And the image that's used for that is like water that's constantly being stirred by the wind. So the wind is constantly blowing on the water and there's constantly waves and leaves falling on the surface and just that kind of disturbance, constant disturbance. And the mind is kind of tossed about with the agitation. And the, the fifth of these energies that contract and obstruct is doubt. And the image for that is um, as if the water was very muddy. Yeah, very, very muddy water as opposed to clear. We can't see the bottom of the pool. Everything is obscured by the doubt. So, you know, we could, we could talk a lot about these specific five energies, but that's not so much the kind of trajectory of this talk. I wanted to mention them, and I'll just repeat them again. Desire, aversion, uh, sloth and turpor, dullness and heaviness, <coughs> restlessness, worry, anxiety, that's all one, and doubt. We could talk a lot about them, but um, I think what I really wanted to... to to bring across is is really to see them as first of all part of the human condition again just like those first arrows they're part of the human condition um, and they're workable and they're workable so it's important to see that when they, when they're present they have that energy of con- con- densifying and contracting the mind yeah and, and experience but they're not the end of the story. Yeah, that's not the end of the story. And often just, and, and this image is really powerful with that, what happens to us is that we don't notice. Yeah, they're so pervasive that we're not actually aware that that's what we're looking through. Yeah, that that's the way of looking that's present through this energy. Yeah, we're not aware of that. And a lot of what practice is is about recognizing Ah, you know, restlessness is present, or dullness is present, you know, or aversion is present. Just recognizing and how, getting to know how does that affect the mind? How does that affect the mind? And through doing that, through that exploration, we're already less imprisoned or limited by that energy. We're already evolving different energies, yeah? that free us, that liberate the mind, that kind of work on that plasticity of the mind and flexibility of the mind. So recognizing, you know, these are really strong ways of looking, really strong energies, and they take over, but not the end of the story. Not the end of the story. And through practice, we can change our relationship. Yeah? We can change our relationship to, to these energies. Yeah? And we can learn to rest back, rest more fully into the energies that enhance the luminosity of the mind, the clarity of the mind. So I want to read another quote from Alan Clements. And it might be a bit long, so... I might have to jump around a bit. 
So this is, um, he was a monk in Burma for a long time, and this is towards the beginning. He, was, he had just done about nine months of very intensive retreat, and he was in a slump. He was in a really dull patch where kind of he was just feeling dullness and lack of interest. And his uh, teacher um, sent him to a beginner's retreat in the monastery. That was his, that was his request. And so he's talking a little bit about this experience. So he's just been doing nine months of very intensive retreat. And there he is with a bunch of people um, receiving their first meditation instruction. And the meditation instruction is based on three words. Look, see, and know. Look, see, and know. So here's what he has to say about it. He says, if you want to know the nature of consciousness, you must look at it. When you look at it, you cannot help but to see it. When you see it long enough, you will invariably know it. Yeah. When you see it long enough, you will invariably know it. In other words, to know the movie on the screen of consciousness, you must observe the characters. You must look at your thoughts, images, emotions, and ideas. These are characters within consciousness. They're not who we are. Yeah? They're not who we are. They're characters within consciousness. Other characters are judgment, anxiety, calmness, anger, love, jealousy, goodness, and so on. All ways of looking. If you pay attention to the interaction of these characters on the screen of your being, you'll come to know each energy what it is and how it behaves. And as with any good drama, you'll see many wonderful and startling things. You'll see that if you occupy a character, fuse with it, become fixed within it, you lose the plot. Yeah? So when anger takes over, when desire takes over, we become that anger. You lose perspective and you fall asleep in the psychodrama of your mind. But if you stay present with the unfolding of the story, so you stay present with what is unfolding in experience, you will see the underlying nature of all characters. You'll see your thoughts, images, sensations, personas and emotions arising and disappearing on the stage of the present moment. So how do we do this as a practice. Yeah. So, you know, he said, look, see, and know. Yeah, look, see, and know. How do we do this as a practice? The first part, or the two first parts that he's speaking about, look and see. You know, we can, we can use different words for that. Recognize. I said just a little bit of recognize what is actually present. So we may be sitting in meditation and feeling, um, you know, some physical pain or tiredness and a lot of agitation around it, a lot of agitation. So starting to look at that experience and to recognize what is actually going on. Yeah, so pain might be pain or discomfort in the body. That's the first arrow. But what are the second arrows that are present? Maybe there's restlessness. Maybe there's aversion to the pain. Probably both, actually. Usually there's more than one. 
So what happens when I recognize? I just name it and acknowledge this is what's going on. What happens if with the recognition, I also allow? Yeah, so I allow the pain to be there. And I allow the aversion to be there. And I allow the restlessness to be there. So I release as much of the contraction as I can. As much of the contraction as I can. This can be, you know, through the breath, through relaxing the body, through finding ways to create space. You know, it can be the wide body awareness that we've been touching on. Sometimes it can be opening the the eyes, letting in light. All these ways of allowing the experience to be there. (coughs) Releasing the, the resistance as much as we can. So this process of recognition and allowance, you know, it creates space. Yeah, so if we're saying that these energies that obstruct, um, they're, they're so strong because they take up the whole space and we forget there's anything else. Once we recognize and allow, there's a bit more space around that. And whatever is recognizing that aversion is here is not aversive. Yeah, it's not caught up in that process. And the allowing increases the space even more. The third from the, you know, look, see and know, that third aspect, the knowing of experience, begins with investigation, yeah? Like turning the attention towards, turning the attention towards and starting to get to know what is this like? So remember when I said contraction is an indication and a doorway. Yeah, it's an invitation to explore experience. So we're turning the difficult into the useful through making it an object of mindfulness and inquiry. Okay, so there's tiredness. What is it like? What makes up this energy? What creates it? What contributes to it? In the body, in the feeling life, in the mental life, you know, we can go through and check what kind of thoughts are present, what kind of body sensations are present, what kind of emotions are present. What feeds or strengthens it? There's really important questions of investigation. What is feeding it? You know, some, often it can be mental loops of thinking. That are kind of feeding it. What happens if, as that feeding is happening, what happens if I then breathe in really deep and really long? How does that change? Is there resistance? And if there is, how is that impacting? How is that impacting the experience? So what feeds this and what can weaken it? Yeah, We're interested in the two. What feeds the energy that's obstructing, that's contracting? And what can weaken it? We're interested in both. There's a lot more questions we can ask, but I'll give a few more. Is it constant? This is one of my favorites. <laughs> So often, again, we, 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 we experience something, it's strong, 
and we rigidify it and we reify it. Yeah? You know, it's, it's constantly painful, you know? And not only is every moment a moment of pain now, but it's going to continue to be painful till the rest of my life. Yeah? That's, if we really look at our experience, that's partly what's going on. So looking, is it constant? Or are there even just glimmers, moments, when it's different, when it's not all-consuming? And if possible, how is it affecting perception? How is it affecting perception? Nathan was giving examples of this yesterday. You know, we're sitting here in the hall. Whatever's going on, people outside are shouting. Is the energy in the mind, is that affecting how I'm perceiving that? Yeah? Is it and how? I'm really interested in that. So all of this is part of the knowing. And that knowing brings about or comes together with the non-identification. Yeah? Remembering this is not who we are. Yeah? This image that Alan Clements uses, you know, the characters in the inner movie. They're all characters, they're all part of, but they arise and they pass. They're all conditioned, yeah, seeing the transiency of the energy. So the non-identification with the interest, with the investigation. So what happens when I bring attention and I bring, in, I bring interest to the experience? How does it change? What happens if I just kind of hold my seat without freaking out? about this restlessness that feels so strong right now. What happens if I stay steady? What happens if I can breathe one comfortable breath? What happens? I'm really interested in all of this, and all of that helps to loosen that sense of identification, of this is who I am. So we have a lot of possibilities, yeah, a lot of possibilities of bringing recognition, allowance, investigation, and remembering not to identify. Yeah, a lot of possibilities. So let's see what's possible. This is a big part of what we're doing here. Let's see what's possible. Not kind of building up our expectations, but just being interested to, to try, to explore, to see what's possible for this body, heart, and mind in this life with these conditions. So let's just have a a quiet moment together to to bring this to a close. (coughs) 
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.